Shalom and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Dvarim. My name is Menachem Liptek. Today we continue our study of Parshat Ki Today is the final shir on the parasha. We will be studying from chapter 25, from verse 13 through verse 19. This divides into two basic topics. Verses 13 through 16 talk about justice in business, especially in regards to weights and measures. And verses 17 through 19 is the famous law to remember what the Amalekites did to us when we left Egypt. Before we begin our study, just a quick note in regard to where we are in Sefer Tvarim. We are coming close to the very end of the Chukim Umishpatim section that began back in chapter 12. Over the last Yorim, we have seen a wide range of laws, most all of them in regard to day-to-day -day life. This entire section has been primarily laws of Ben Adam Lachavero, interactions between man and his fellow man, and today's shir begins with a law which forms a very nice conclusion to this general topic. Chapter 25, verse 13, Perach Pasuk Yud You shall not have in your pouch alternate weights, larger and smaller. The word kisir refers to a pouch that a person would use to put weights in. And when people would buy and sell, they would use a scale called Vasnaim, and on one side of the scale there would be the produce or the commodity, the other side of the scale would be the weight. So therefore, in your pouch, don't have two stones that both stay on them the same weight, while really one is smaller and one is larger. There is a verse in the book of Micha, which relates exactly to this, in the book of Micha in chapter 6, in verse 11, where the Navi Micha is complaining in regard to the unjust character of business practices in this time period. He says in verse 11 in chapter 6, So we see here, a bag that holds these different weights is called a kis. And mosnaim is the word for the scale that one uses to measure what he's selling. So basically what this verse is saying is when it comes to doing business, make sure that your weights are just and upright. For example, let's say the standard measure would be a kilo. So don't have one stone which really weighs 0.9 kilo, and another stone that really weighs 1.1 kilo, and claim that both of them are a kilo, and when you're buying something, you put the stone that really weighs 1.1, and when you're selling something, you use the stone that says 0.9. That is cheating in business, and this is what the Torah is fighting against. In the next verse, we have the same concept in relation to dry measures, and the classic dry measure in ancient times was called an ifa. Verse 14, in your home, you shall not have with you two different dry measures, both saying an efa on them, and one really is a little bit less than efa, and the other is a little more than efa, and again, using that to trick people in business transactions. Instead, what should you have? Pasik Tedvav, verse 15. You must have completely honest weights and completely honest measures. In order that you should live for a long time on this land that Hashem your God is giving to you. And as we mentioned before, the concept of arichut yamim, of living for a long time, throughout Sefer Dvarim, is regard to the nation staying in the land as opposed to being exiled due to their evil behavior, again on the national level. Pasuk Tetzayin, verse 16, the conclusion. Ki to'avat Adonai Elohecha ko ose'ele ko ose'avel. Because this type of behavior, 
scheming in business and cheating people using phony weights, that is detestable in the eyes of God. This is a Torah Hashem. This is something important to Hashem your God. We find very similar concluding lines in Parshat Doshim to you in chapter 19 in Sefer Vayikra. Recall as well that chapter 19 in Sefer Vayikra is titled Kedoshim to you, which means act in a way that reflects Agoy Kadosh, which was the theme of the covenant in Mount Sinai. And in chapter 19, from verse 33 to the end of the chapter, first we are reminded not to mistreat a stranger in our land. Instead, treat him like a citizen and love him like ourselves. And then it says, Lo tasu bamishpat. Do not act dishonestly in judgment. Bamida bamishkal bamsura. Anything that has to do with business and weights. Then he concludes, Moznei tzedek, Adnei tzedek, Efat tzedek, Vehin tzedek, Yalechem, Ani Adonai Adoichem, Asher Tzetietchem, Meretz Mitzrayim. Make sure that in your society, all of your skills and all of your weights and everything you measure with is just and upright. I am Hashem your God who took you out of Egypt to become this nation. Therefore, these concluding lines of Parshat Doshim to you reflect the very same theme that we've seen now in these laws in Sefer Devarim. The reason I quoted these verses in Parshat Doshim in Sefer Vayikra is to show the connection between building a just society and remembering to get to out of Egypt. The next topic is going to relate once again to Jewish memory. And we'll begin now in verse 17 with the famous line from Parshat Zachor in Pasuk Yitzayin, Zachor et asher Amalek Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. As all the laws till now have related to establishing a just and upright society, this law about Amalek seems again to be an anomaly because it sounds more like a vendetta, as we will see, to punish any descendant from Amalek. However, we'll try to show in our shir that it may be referring to the very same topic that we've been discussing all along in Sefer Dvarim, and that is to the establishment of a just society and using the memory of your history to shape your national behavior. So let's continue now with verse 18, Pasuk Yitchet, to see what it is that we need to remember. Asher korcha remember how we met you on your journey, v'ezanev b'cha kol and how we attacked all the stragglers at the back of the camp, v'ata ayef and you were tired and exhausted, v'lo yarei Elohim, now, as almost all the commentators explained, and he, Amalek, did not have in them the fear of Elohim, or the fear of God. We'll return very soon to explain what that verse means. In order to appreciate every phrase in this last verse that we just read, we must go back to chapter 17 in the book of Shemot, in the story of our very first encounter with Amalek, to better understand what it is precisely that we need to remember in regard to what happened with Amalek. Chapter 17 began when Amisa were traveling from Midbarsin till they arrive in Rufidim. And when they arrive in Rufidim, there's no water for the people to drink. The people complain about their situation. Moshe turns to God, and God gives Moshe the following solution. In chapter 17, verse 5, God tells Moshe to go pass in front of the people and take with them from the elders of Israel, together with his staff, that he hit the Nile River with, and to walk. To walk where? In verse 6, God tells Moshe Rabbeinu to take his staff, to take some elders, and go to the rock in Chorev, 
That's the site where God first appeared to Moshe Rabbeinu by the burning bush. And there, Bikita Batsur, they hit the rock and water will come out and then you'll give the people water to drink. What's important in that story is that the people are dying of thirst in Rifidim and God tells Moshe Rabbeinu to go to Chorev, to Mount Sinai, which is at least one day's distance away, in order to get water for the people to drink. And at Mount Sinai, that is in Chorev, that's where the water begins to flow from the rock. Now the people are a day's distance away in Rifidim. How are they going to get the water at Har Sinai? Well, the answer is simple. The people in Rifidim must walk now to Har Sinai in order to get the water to drink. But if people are dying of thirst, only the strong and able-bodied people are going to be able to get first to Mount Sinai to get the water. And those people will bring water back to help the people in the camp. And slowly, the entire camp will move from Rifidim to Mount Sinai. Now in Pasachet, in verse 8, we find Amalek attacking. Then Amalek comes, and he fights Am Yisrael in Rifidim. Who now is in Rifidim? The strong and able-bodied people are getting water in Chorev and Har Sinai. And who's left behind in Rifidim? The people who are weak and tired. Therefore, Moshe tells Yeshua to get some men together, that is the army people, and go fight Amalek. But the battle is going to happen Mahar tomorrow because it's going to take a day for Yeshua to get the strong people who are with him in Chorev and Har Sinai to go back to the camp and fight Amalek who's attacking those people back in the camp who are weak. This explanation is key in understanding Amalek because this situation is typical of Amalekite behavior. Almost every time we find Amalek, we find them attacking unprotected people. When Amalek fights, it's not army against army, but rather, a classic case would be, when two armies are fighting, Amalek will come to the home front and attack the unprotected city. They'll attack the women and children when the men are out in the battlefield fighting. In the book of Shmuel Aleph, Perak Lamed, in chapter 30, when David and his men are out fighting their battles, the Amalekites come to Tziklag, that's the city where David was living, but now the city has only women and children in it, Amalek come and they kidnap all the women and children of that town, planning to sell them into slavery. Of course, when David returns, he finds out what happened. He chases after them and is finally able to return the women and children. But there again is typical Amalek behavior attacking unprotected people. You'll notice also that there's no specific land where Amalekites are living. We find them when we come out of Egypt, near Mount Sinai, in Rafidim. We find them later on in Emek Israel. We find them in Transjordan. Recall as well, in the beginning of Shmovet, there's a story of Anar Amaleki, an Amalekite lad who had taken the crown of Shaul and brought it back to David. We see from there that what did the Amalekites do? When the battle was over, especially a bloody battle, when there are a lot of dead soldiers, Amalek is not on the battlefield when the battle is taking place. Rather, after the battle is over, they scavenge the battlefield and take any jewelry or any possessions that can be found on the dead bodies of the soldiers who were killed. So again, they take advantage of the battlefield after the battle was over. And I highly doubt that they were helping those who were wounded or in need of medical assistance. This also can explain why the Shalal, why the booty of Amalek is forbidden, because Amalek is trafficking in stolen goods. And if Amalek is stealing from unprotected people, and then we fight Amalek and take their possessions, and if we keep it for ourselves, 
we would be taking advantage of the evil acts that they did. Therefore, all the shalal, all the booty from Amalek, cannot be used for our own needs. Rather, it is cherem, is either destroyed or dedicated to God. We should also mention in regard to where Amalekites are living. There's no country with defined borders called Amalek. Rather, they're nomadic people. They're usually living in the Negev area. They become a nomadic people, and their entire livelihood is based on attacking unprotected people. They'll attack travelers who are unprotected. They'll deal in human trafficking. And again, we find over and over again that the core manner in which they make a living is by attacking people who are unprotected. It is that specific behavior that anchors God, and hence we need to remember what they did to us. And as we will see, like all the other memories that we find in Sefer Tvarim, those memories are in order that we remember how we should not behave. We have to remember how we were mistreated and make sure that we do not do that to others. If that's the main purpose of remembering Amalek, then that would fit perfectly with the underlying theme of all these laws in Sefer Tvarim of sensitivity to the needs of others and for sure not taking advantage of unprotected people. To support this, we simply need to look in Sefer Brishit at the phrase of Yirat Elohim. Recall that in what we read in Sefer Tvarim, the final phrase was Velo Yare Elohim, that Amalek did not have the fear of God. Recall from Brishit chapter 20, when Abram and Sarah are visiting the area of Avimelech, and Avimelech takes Sarah, who was Abram's wife, and God comes to Avimelech and rebukes him for taking Abram's wife, and then Abimelech complains to Abram Avinu and says, Why did you do this to me? Avram's answer in chapter 20, verse 11 was, Ki Avram told Avimelech, my assumption was that there's no Yirat Elohim in the city, there's no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because they'll want to take my wife. So a city or a community where someone will take a stranger's wife, and they can do that because that stranger is unprotected, that behavior is in Yirat Elohim. Another example, in chapter 42 in Sefer Breshit, with Yosef and his brothers. Yosef, pretending to be an Egyptian, trying to hide the fact that he's Jewish, accuses his brothers of being spies, puts them all in jail, tells them, you all remain in jail, and send one brother to come back and bring Binyamin to prove your story. They stay in jail for three days, and after three days of being in jail, Yosef returns to them with the opening line, at the Luhim at the end of verse 18 in chapter 42, he tells his brothers, I have the fear of God in me, and therefore, instead of all ten of you remaining in jail, only one of you, only one of you needs to stay in jail, and all the rest of you can go back and bring food to your family, and afterwards, bring back Binyamin. When Yosef wants to explain to his brothers his change of heart, he introduces his behavior as, I have Yerat Elohim, which means I'm a moral and just person. Someone without Yirat Elohim is immoral and unjust. Someone with Yirat Elohim is just and moral. One could even suggest that that may be one of the key ideas of monotheism in the Torah, that to believe in God is not simply something philosophical or intellectual, but rather it's something behavioral. If someone truly believes in God as a creator and in a purpose for creation, that will lead him to just and upright behavior. He'll do good and not do evil. And that understanding would lead to what Chumash refers to as Yirat Elohim. Another classic example is the beginning of Sefer Shemot, where the midwives 
Shifra and Pua, the Meodot Ha'ivriot, they're commanded by Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys at childbirth. And then we're told that Tirena Ha'miodot et Elohim, the Meodot had the fear of God in them, and therefore they did not throw the newborn babies into the river, rather they kept them alive. So again, we see another example of just and moral behavior as Yirat Elohim. Amalekite behavior is exactly the opposite. They have no Yirat Elohim. Also, in Shmuel Aleph and Perik Tedvav, the Aftarah for Shabbat Zohar that we read, when God tells Shmuel to tell Shaul, the new king, to fight Amalek, God says, I remember what Amalek did to you when you left Egypt. Now that you're king, it's your job to fight them. He's not fighting necessarily the biological descendants of Amalek because it would be very hard to keep track of several hundred years later who were the biological descendants of the people who attacked us when we left Egypt. But rather the behavior of Amalek and Agag in the desert area was the same type of behavior that Amalek had when we left Egypt. Recall that at the end of chapter 15, in verse 33, before Shmuel executes Agag, he says, Kasher just like your sword caused many mothers to lose their children, now Shmuel's sword will cause Amalek's mother to lose her child. So we see from here that Amalek is being punished for his own evil behavior and not for the sins of his great-great-grandparents. Recall also the principle that we learned in yesterday's class of God commands us the parents should not be punished for the sins of their children, nor should children be punished for the sins of their fathers. So why should descendants of Amalek, living hundreds of years later, be punished for what their parents did? Should they not be acting the same way? But if their great-great-grandchildren are acting in a similar manner, then we have to punish them. But it can't be that Tchumash would command God's people to execute people hundreds of years later only because of some action that their great-great-grandparents did, even though they themselves are doing nothing wrong. Furthermore, there's no laws of who determines Amalek descent. Do we go by paternal descent? Do we go by maternal descent? Who decides who's a descendant of Amalek? And there's no geographical borders either. So even from a practical point of view, there'd be no way that we could fulfill a commandment to kill the descendants of Amalek if there's no plausible way of tracking who those specific descendants are of the people who first attacked us when we came out of Egypt. But rather, the behavior of the people who attacked us coming out of Egypt. That Amalekite behavior that's typical of the behavior that the Torah is trying to uproot, and it's our job as God's people to wipe out that behavior. In light of that, we can return now and read the next verse. In chapter 25, verse 19, V'haya, it shall come to pass, V'aniach Adonai Elohech Halacha, B'kol Oyevecha Misaviv, When Hashem your God gives you rest from all your enemies around, Ba'aretz Asher Adonai Elohecha, Lotein Lecha Nachalad Arishtah, in the land that Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, Then you must blot out or wipe out this memory of Amalek from under the heaven. You must not forget. This brings up another question. Why is the commandment to wipe out Amalek only after Hashem gives us rest from all of our enemies around? If we have rest from our enemies, why bother with Amalek? We also know that the rabbis understand that this commandment to wipe out Amalek is specifically for the king. The Rambam in Yechot Malachim begins exactly with this topic. In the laws of kings, he says, when the nation of Israel comes into the land, they're commanded to establish a king, 
and the king must wipe out Amalek and then build the Beit HaMikdash. Why is it the job of the king and not the regular person? I think the answer is easy to understand once you understand the reality of the geography of the land of Israel. The land of Israel is located along a major highway that connects Egypt with Mesopotamia. And the way to travel from Egypt to Mesopotamia is going through the Sinai Desert and then crossing through the land of Israel and then continuing up north through Syria into Mesopotamia. Or alternately, someone can travel along the Sinai Desert south of Beersheba and go south of the Dead Sea and go through Jordan. But either way, many travelers use the Negev, the southern part of Israel, as they travel through the Middle East. As such, the prime place for people like Amalek to dwell would be along that highway in the desert area. To this very day, the Sinai suffers from the same problem. Or basically, Amalek is a type of international piracy. And the average person cannot protect himself from Amalek, he can only run away from them, or pray that he doesn't encounter them. It is only a strong nation with a standing army that has the ability to wipe out a phenomenon like Amalek. If you know from more modern history, piracy on the open seas was a major nuisance for international travel, and it was only the British army that was able to fight that piracy and make shipping by boat a safe endeavor. So it could be that once we have rest from all of our enemies, and we are established as a nation, and we have a king and a strong government and a strong army, and we've taken care of ourselves, we also have a responsibility to the international community to help not only our own borders, but also the borders near our land. And in the area of the Negev and the Sinai, we have a commandment, we have a responsibility to wipe out phenomena such as Amalek. And that could explain why this is a commandment specifically for the king or for the nation and not a commandment for the individual. The individual person has to remember what Amalek did to us, and that memory will remind him how he should not behave. He has to remember what's considered action that is detestable in the eyes of God. What is something that is not Yeratelukim? However, the commandment to physically eradicate Amalek, that's a commandment for a nation and not for the individual. And hence, the rabbis understand this is a mitzvah for the king. And also, if one generation got rid of Amalek, how can it be a commandment for all generations? But if Amalek is a type of behavior that unfortunately happens in many societies, it happens throughout the ages, then it makes sense that wiping out Amalek can become an eternal commandment because even though we defeated one type of Amalek behavior, Amalek behavior might resurface again. And therefore, it's a commandment for all generations, not only to remember what they did so that we don't act that way, but also to take that responsibility once we have the ability as a nation to fight this type of piracy. If this understanding is correct, then this law fits very nicely with all the other laws in Sefer Dvarim for two reasons. One, it has to do with just and upright behavior and taking care of the less fortunate people. And also, it fits with the same commandment of remembering that you were a slave in Egypt that we've seen so many times in Sefer Dvarim. Chumash is using memory as an educational tool. Remember how you were mistreated and don't do that to others. So just like we have to remember how the Egyptians mistreated us when we were strangers and when we were slaves, we should not do that to people who are working for us. Rather, we have to be kind and benevolent to them. In a similar manner, we need to remember our history of what Amalek did to us and how they attacked us and why they attacked us. We have to detest that type of behavior 
and remember for sure that we should never act that way. And true, we have the ability to wipe out that type of behavior at the international level. That becomes our responsibility later as a nation. So one might ask, what makes Haman of Megillat Esther under the category of Amalek? Well, if you remember, the first edict that goes out that Haman publishes and is signed by the king is that on a certain day, all the Jews in the Persian Empire are unprotected. That is, there'll be one day on the 13th of Adar, there's an official memo going out to the entire Persian Empire. On that day, anyone in the Persian Empire can attack a Jew, and the Persian Empire will not protect that Jew. On every other day of the year, they're protected by Persian law. Therefore, anyone attacking Am Yisrael, based on that edict, is attacking people who are unprotected. And note, when the second letter goes out, how does it change the first letter? The second letter says, now the Jews can stand up and protect themselves from their enemies, which means, in the first letter, it was forbidden for them to protect themselves. So it could be from that perspective, even in the story of Megillat Esther, we find the same type of Amalekite behavior. For this reason, the law to remember what Amalek did to us forms a fitting conclusion to this section of laws that ends now in Parshat Kitetze. Wishing everyone a Shabbat Shalom.